Welcome back to another edition of The Yoke with Doak. In this episode, Tom Doak and I discuss his new project at Sand Valley, golf in England, and then we get to a bunch of listener questions. Recorded a few of these, so we'll we'll release these throughout the winter. Without further ado, here is Tom Doak. Candid Doak doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. Yeah, what do you what do you think about uh, Yale? Uh, well, I'm a Cornell person, so I have to temper it with their Yaleys. But uh, I've always loved that golf course. It's so, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. And it's the only really good golf course in Connecticut. Um, and it's and it's about the only, it's one of the few courses I played that actually feels like Connecticut. I mean, Connecticut is woodsy, but also really rocky, which is why there aren't a lot of great golf courses there because it cost a fortune to build in that kind of land. And very few people did it, but, you know, they built that golf course in the 20s, blasting and, you know, blasting off the tops of a ridge to build a green, um, some pretty intense construction for those days. And it's, and, but they could only do so much with it. So it's still super dramatic compared to most of the courses in that day and age, because it was built on such a rugged side. Yeah. It feels like you're like constantly having to tackle wilderness out there yep. where it's yeah and you know and that 18th hole is probably the best example of that that you know that feels just like you're playing across country and you know it's so much longer if you're playing the back tee than a typical par five like that you know usually you you'd use that kind of severe land for shorter holes instead of like the longest hole on the golf course and the joke's always been well, he got to 17 and the clubhouse was all the way back there. So they just had to get back there with whatever. But, you know, I, I, I mean, I kind of feel like that whole place more like how golf used to be where you're hitting long clubs and a, and a par five is a really long hole and you have to hit three good shots on it, which is almost never true anymore. Um, you know, and, you know, that's what that's one of the things we've lost with the good players being able to hit it so much farther is they never have a hole like that. And they never have a hole where they have to like lean on a three wood or a four wood for the second shot. Why would they bother? Just to get a wedge in like right. that lean on a three wood forward just to get a wedge. in. that, that was a question I had um, was with the modern golfer. Is it, is our par, par fives becoming the most difficult hole to design because of the gap? Yeah, well, they always have been. I mean, you know, you've always had some players that are thinking about getting there in two. So if you design a tiny green or you guard it really closely, they think that's preventing us from trying to go for the green. And at the same time, if you've got your typical golfer just trying to get there in a, with a third shot and a short iron, you know, he's got to be able to get the ball close to compete and 
you know, so if you give the good golfer too much space where it, you know, if they go for it in two and they miss it, they're still going to make four all the time. Then the other guy has no chance of competing at all. So that's, that's, that's half the trick. And then the other half of the trick is a par five more than any other hole. You really have no idea where somebody's going to be after two shots. You know, they could be, they could be right next to the green. They could be 250 yards away. You know, Pete Ty said to me when I work for him, they could still be on the tee <laughs> hitting their next ball, hitting their next drive. Yeah. So you can't predict it at all. And you, so you kind of have to make the hole playable all the way in. You know, it has to be, it has to be a decent approach shot from 260 yards. It has to be a decent, interesting shot if you're 20 yards off the green. And with a par four, you don't have to worry about that. You can, you know, with, with a short par four, you can predict, well, you know, I'll either let guys go for it or they'll probably lay up to here. But there's, there's really only like two or three different places they're likely to be. Yeah, I, I look at shot link data from the tour all the time and par fives are definitely the most scattered on second shots. You see people and you're, I'm always looking over dots and these are the best players in the world. And sometimes I like find a dot and I'm like, how is he hitting his third shot from here? And it's, it's funny, but no other hole. It's like that. Really. Yeah. And that's because he was probably trying to hit a forward out of the rough that he shouldn't have ever been trying to do anything <laughs> with it. But, but he's like, well, I'll still be able to get to the green in three, even if this messes up. So I'll go for it. It's an interesting psychology that for the elite player and it is now par fives. Like if you make a par almost on any of them, it feels like you're losing shots. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would assume that players are more aggressive than ever on par fives. So that could be a way to counter is knowing that people are going to play really aggressive. Yeah. And, you know, we were just, I was just up at Sand Valley yesterday and, you know, we're talking about building a golf course with no par fives or just maybe one par five. And, you know, some of the par fours are going to be really long. So there, there will be some holes that the average guys like, you know, playing at like a three shot hole, but they're getting, you know, those are the number one and two handicap holes also. So they're getting a stroke. So they're still pretty competitive at that. But, um, but it'll be interesting to have a, you know, in theory, you would almost never have anything but a mid or short iron approach on that golf course mm-hmm. if we don't have any par fives. You know, a, you know, for the for the tour pros, you know, par fives are the only place they hit mo- more than a seven iron approach. That and a long par three. Mm-hmm. They always ask us, why do you build long par threes? And it's like. Cause it's the only holes we can make you hit a long approach shot. Yeah. I mean, I hate doing it. They're right. that shorter par threes are more interesting and cooler and more people can play them. But you know, that's just, that's just a reaction. That's the biggest reaction. I think to how that distance gap is like, you know, the par, the par fours and the par fives don't play long at all. So the only place you can make a guy hit a long shot is a par three. That's it. Something that I think about all the time because it's in Donald Ross's book, Golf Has Never Failed Me. One of the quotes that always sticks with me is, you know, Donald Ross was a great player and he said, the greatest skill in the game of golf is the ability to hit long irons, like accurate long irons. Mm -hmm. And then you talk to a guy like Mike Clayton. Mike Clayton always talks about 
how Seve could hit these towering long irons, how Jack Nicholas and, and Arnold Palmer, how their greatest skill were the, it was, it wasn't just the ability that they drove it far, but it was their ability to hit towering long irons to tucked flags that nobody else could hit. Right. And, and then that also the angles matter so much more when you're hitting a long iron in and, uh, strategy wise. So speaking of that's obviously big news. I mean, congrats on the sand Valley thing. Thanks. It was, you know, it was kind of a hard decision because I was talking to Mr. Kohler and to Mr. Kaiser at the same time about doing projects. And for a while, of course, I didn't tell either one that I was also talking to the other one. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, we were, you know, feeling pretty good about both projects and starting to talk about contracts. And then one of them wanted me to choose. You know, because once I once I brought up, yeah, yeah, I'm talking to the other one too. Um, oh, well, we'd rather you don't do that. And you know, very hard choice. You know, I've known Mr. Kohler for 30 years because I, you know, I he started building the first course at Black Wolf Run just after I'd quit working for Pete Dye. One of my ex roommates was the construction superintendent on the golf course, and I came came over and visited a couple of times, and then. Um, I just moved to Traverse City to do High Point, and Mr. Dye told Mr. Kohler that he should get me to come over and take pictures of the golf course for the publicity stuff on it because Pete always liked that. You know, he could look at one of my pictures and know what the hole was and kind of tell how you're supposed to play it. Yeah. You know, other guys would take great looking pictures, but you didn't even know what hole it was. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I went over and spent three or four days hanging out there waiting for good light, trying to take pictures. And so this is like 1987, I think. And, um, Mr. Kohler was pretty new to golf at that point. And he would have lunch with me pretty much. I remember having lunch with him two or three days in a row and him just asking me tons and tons of questions about the golf business because I was young and I'd been around a little bit and I would just, you know, say whatever was on my mind. (laughs) So we've been, you know, I've kind of kept in touch with him for years and, you know, once or twice we've talked about doing a project somewhere. He's looked at doing tons of different projects in different places around the world, but never really pulled the trigger on anything outside of there and, you know, buying St. Andrews, which included the Duke's course. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was really hard to tell Mike yeah tell Mike yes knowing that meant telling Herb no cuz he's got a beautiful piece of land for a golf course too. He's kind of in a battle over, you know, I think he's got perm basically got permits to build it, but he's also got people suing him trying to stop it and you know nobody he has no idea how long that'll take and it's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe It'll come back, you know. But come you know, so so the you know the only difference to me between the two jobs are two great clients, two people I like a lot. You know, Mr. Kohler's project is a really cool sand duny site right on the lake, and everybody would think, oh, you know, he's just got another one of those, another waterfront site with dunes and you know, great piece of land for golf. And 
I probably would have gone for that except for Michael Kaiser started talking about doing one of the concepts that I've wanted to do forever, which is build a shorter golf course. Don't even make it par 70, you know, make that a strong point of it instead of apologizing for it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which it's an interesting case. We, we just spent two days talking about it. Like, what are people going to say about this? Cause we don't, you know, you, we don't have to do that. We have plenty of land to make it longer and more like a regulation golf course. So everybody's going to ask, aren't you compromising? You know, why would you do that instead of building three par fives like anyone else would do? So it, between you, you've built some great golf courses on, you know, oceanfront dunescapes. You've built an incredible reversible course that's a completely different concept. You've got the Rawls course, which was, you know, manufactured, earth was moved to build. How is it? Does it help you artistically and creatively to to change it up all the time, you know, and and do different different types of projects? Absolutely. I mean, we don't want to do the same, you know, I don't want my courses to all look alike. I don't want to be like Seth Rayner. Nothing against Seth Rayner, but I don't want to be like Seth Rayner where you know oh, par 3 is coming up, it's 220 yards long. I know what that's going to look like. And he's not the only architect that was ever like that. He's just the most famous. But there are a lot that do thing, you know, they get in their comfort zone and everybody likes their comfort zone. So why would they go outside that so much? And, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not like that. I, I think the main reason I'm not like that is I've seen a ton of really great golf courses that are way different from each other. Like, you know, we were talking about Yale. Yale's a Rainer golf course, but it's not really like his other golf courses. It's more dramatic. Um, you know, I'm going to Woodhall Spa next month. We've been consulting for them for the last couple of years and rebuilding six holes at a time. So this will be the last stretch of it. And that golf course is like nowhere else that I've ever been. It's maybe a little bit like Garden City, but because it's fairly flat overall and then the bunkering is really dramatic but in a different way than garden city you know garden city has the, just those little tiny hazards mm -hmm. woodall spa has great big pits man-eating pits but they're really really deep and and gnarly native vegetation on the faces of them and so so i think you know why would i keep building bunkers the same way we've been doing them when you know, I see so many other things that nobody's trying to do. Why wouldn't somebody try to do that in America? And I don't, you know, it might be a hard sell in America. Woodall Spa, you can get in some really nasty places when you miss. And I'm sure there's some people in America that would just be like, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be. You've got to clean that up. But they don't apologize for it over there. Yeah, it's uh, it's it reminds me of Mark Cuban. I was listening to a podcast like maybe five, seven years ago. He said it, his theory on his NBA team, the Mavericks, when everybody zigs, he runs as far zagging away 
You know, he always, if everybody's going one way, he's always trying to go the other way. And it's, they've run one of the best franchises. They've had struggles lately. But, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. that was working for a while, yeah. not, not so much the last couple of years. <laughs> but he got a championship <laughs> with doing that, that theory. Um, but uh, so the, the course, uh, to, uh, tell me a little bit about the land and what drew you to that specific part of this massive property i mean they've got thousands of thousands tens of thousands of acres there and and how did you kind of find that plot of land like what what drew you there uh michael actually actually suggested i look at that piece i mean they've had at least half a dozen different architects look at the land that's left up there and do routings for all kinds of different things and concepts and you know, I, I honestly, you know, I don't know who will be next on the list and I don't know how fast they'll get to that, but they've got some really interesting ideas and they got a lot of land to do it on. You know, the, the piece of land that I had kind of gravitated to what is, uh, it's south of the David's golf course, basically. And the problem is that it does there's no good way to get to it from where the resort is um you know we all kind of like the routing of it we weren't a hundred percent like that's the perfect routing but you know to to operate that course they would have to build a new you know small clubhouse or large clubhouse or something but they'd have to start shuttling people all the way around to get to it or they'd have to build a small road that went through David's course that you'd see in a couple places. And they really don't want to do that. So, so now it's like, Oh shit. Now we've got all this other infrastructure we have to deal with to get around there. And that's a pain, you know, isn't there anything we could do that's still proximate enough to the lodge that's there that we could get another golf course out of it. So there's, there's one place there's kind of a little knoll, it's right above where 17 green is at sand valley and at one point i'd done a routing for them that that used that piece of land for a couple of holes out and back and then down across and into the property where david's course is now um and you you know so that's where the sandbox is and david's course so you can't use that but those two holes are still there and you can go there and then go the other direction west and kind of out to the far western part of the site and around the back of Bill's course, around the back of Bill's back nine. And Michael said, why don't you look at this and see what you could get out of it? And and he mentioned, again, the concept of doing that shorter course. You know, and I started playing with it, and it didn't take long to see, yeah, this, you know, the, the, the land for the first few holes and the last few holes is pretty rugged, so it's hard to get a par five out of it. You know, it's just, you kind of run out of room a lot of the places you want to be. It's, you can get a 440 yard hole out of it, but trying to get a 540 yard hole of it, it doesn't really work. And then it gets into a really narrow slot where you kind of have to have a couple of short holes just to get through the little gap between the property line and where Bill's course is without messing with Bill's course at all. And then it opens up again. Um, and, you know, from there, we could make it longer if we wanted to. 
but the land's not really that exciting. So we tried to cram as much good as we could into that first part and get through our little gap. And then we're pretty happy with having a couple long par threes and a couple of short par fours to, you know, make up the rest of the golf course. Um, so it's a, it's, you said it's going to be kind of inspired by the Heathland courses where you see a lot of, you know, the UK Heathland courses where you see a lot of par 68, 69, Harry Colt, uh, Swinley Forest would be one. Right. Uh, Swinley Rye. Forest is one. Rye is a Lynx, but yeah. it's, but it's, it's the hardest par 68 in the world. Um, West Sussex, Polboro is another one. The Addington is another one. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's four or five of those kind of courses southwest of London that are all really fun golf courses. You know, I didn't, I hadn't thought about it at the time, but you know, when I wrote the first volume of the confidential guide, you know, now that I've broken it up into different sections, I'm picking, you know, I'm picking 18 courses per book to put in the front for my gourmet's choice. Mm -hmm. And I picked rye and West Sussex and Swinley forest and a couple of others that were all par 68 or 69 golf courses, not deliberately. I mean, they really are some of my favorite courses and more than that, you know, I'm, I'm picking one. I won't pick, more than one for any architect in the front of that. And so they're, they're, those are all different architects. That's Simpson, Colt, uh, Abercrombie. Uh, Rye was designed by a bunch of people. I can't remember who I was thinking I could say. Uh, maybe Sir Guy Campbell did the last version. So so I assigned that to him so I did, didn't have to disqualify it as being another Colt course. Uh, but... Um, you know, I think those are some of their best work. Harry Colt said about Swinley Forest, he thought it was his least bad golf course, which is a very modest way of putting it. But, you know, he really thought of it as being equal to some of his best work, even though it's a par 68 golf course and it's barely 6,000 yards long. Um, do you... I feel like the Heathland courses of of around London are are underappreciated in the world of golf. Certainly, I mean, I I think golf courses in England are tremendously unappreciated or underappreciated in the world of golf because they don't market them like Scotland and Ireland do. Uh, and a lot of them are, you know, they're closer to London. They're private clubs. The members pay more in dues. So they're not as interested in having a ton of overseas visitors to to pay for it the way that clubs in Scotland are. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Scotland they keep the dues really low because the visitors essentially pay to maintain the golf course. Um, but it's it's Sunningdale. No, you know, we'll let some visitors come, but this is really for us, and we can afford to maintain it ourselves. Yeah, it's it the it seems like Pasatiempo is the only club in the u.s that's like even close to uk model at this point maybe there's a few others but they do it seemingly seemingly the best that dues are really low for members but you know all the public can play and they put pay a premium to put, play it right and you know in pasta Diempo's case that's just a um it's just a remnant of their checkered history you know it went bankrupt in the depression and it had to be a public course for a while 
And when they kind of reincorporated and made it private again, they were like, well, we don't, you know, we don't want to make it entirely private. None of us would, none of us would even be able to enjoy it if they hadn't kept it public for years. So we want to keep that component as part of the memberships. And, you know, so when they, when they recapitalized it, everybody was understanding of that model. You know, a lot of clubs now, you know, if you try to do that at most clubs, the members all joined it because it was private. So there's definitely going to be a strong faction of the membership that doesn't want to see outsiders be able to come in just whenever. It's fascinating to me because there's so many clubs that are in financial situations where the revenue would be unbelievably helpful for their business. And and yeah. the fact that they aren't doing it, it just, it boggles my mind. It's like, this is the lowest hanging fruit. Do you, and it, and it, right. I, and I've always heard there's tax consequences yeah. to that, that they, you know, they, they're in a different category of paying taxes as a private club up till the point where I can't, it's like five or 10% of their, if more than five or 10% of their revenue is outside business, then they're, then they're paying taxes like a business does. Uh, so they're trying not to go over that line. That's, that's, that's interesting. I never had thought about that. Um, so we got, a, here's a, a question from Garrett Ford. Um, and this kind of plays into the Sedge Valley. Do, do you believe that modern architecture has gone too far in the direction of width and playability? Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in I'm an American, and my whole life has been marketed to me that bigger is better in everything. It's true. <laughs> and, you know, golf has just fallen into that, too. You know, the, the idea that every, every public golf course should be 7,000 yards long so it can host a championship, even though there's not many championships per year, and they tend not to go to the new public course down the road. Um, you know, so the the length part, you know, I've been kind of a conscientious objector to my whole life. You know, I, when we did Pacific Dunes, and some people were pushing Mr. Kaiser to make, you know, it's great, but why don't you make it 7,000 yards long too? I would just shrug my shoulders and say, you know, the other course is already 7,000 yards and this is just a resort. You don't need them all to be. If you ever had the U.S. Amateur here, you'd use the other course, which they're going to do when they have the U.S. Amateur there. <laughs> um, so, you know, I really resisted making that 7,000 yards long. It would have been hard. There would have been a couple of really awkward tees to get it up there. And you, you probably, we probably would have had to change one or two of the holes on the more, the less interesting ground, like 15, in order to get to 7,000 yards. And I just thought it was a point, you know, in the wind, nobody would care. And, and you know, only 5% of people play from the back tees anyway. You know, and everyone in the golf marketing business will tell you, even so, 
it, it almost matters more to these guys that are going to play from 6,000 yards that it says 7,000 yards from the back tee than it does to the guys who would actually play from there. I think it has to do with people's, like the general golfer perception of like the way they put the the best player at my club on a pedestal or the best player at my course. Mm-hmm. So they look up to that player. I, I Part, I, I never thought about it that way until then is like, I think that's where a lot of this goes is like, you know, people will ask the best player at their club, what clubs they should buy. You know, why, right. why would you ask somebody that plays a completely different game? Right. What kind of clubs you should buy? And right. the most, you know, and the most, well, I think I've said it on the podcast somewhere before that the, the, the question I'm asked the most often when we're going into a club for consulting work is anything we propose taken out a tree making a fairway wider making the green you know making the greens bigger and trying to get the old corners of the greens back the the question is isn't that going to make the course easier like that would be the worst thing in the world and and but the the baffling thing is the guy who's asking it is like a 15 handicap guy you know it's not this it's not the best player in the club it's this other guy and it's taken me a long time to think it through but i think that guy doesn't want the best player in the club to think he wants it to be easier for himself so he's kind of defending the other guy so he can look like he's not you know he's not just trying to make it easy for himself which is crazy but so so the the length thing you know we've been dealing with that forever now, I started building wide golf courses. You know, high point was wide. Um, you know, Bill Corr, from the very first course he did on his own, Kapalua is wide. <laughs> um, we, you know, some of that was a reaction to windy environments. Some of it was a reaction to terrain. But some of it was just we really felt like you needed to give the average person more room to play golf that, that, you know, cause you know, you watch tournaments on TV and fairways keep getting narrower and narrower for championships. I mean, I remember when, you know, when I was a kid, Wingfoot's fairways were like 38 or 40 yards wide. And then they narrowed them to about 30 or 32 for the U S open. Now they're like 23. And, you know, that might work if the if the if the rough is really playable, but you know, if if I played eighteen holes on twenty three yard wide fairways, I, and I hit driver most of the time, I'd hit like three or four fairways around, and that wouldn't be and you know and if the rough is tough and you're you know you can't go for the green if you've missed the fairway, that would be a really excruciatingly boring round of golf to just miss fairways hack back out into the fairway and go from there yeah pitch it up or hit a wedge in so so i've always built wide stuff and when we did old mcdonald a bunch of people said isn't that too wide i mean isn't that just with for width's sake and no it was you know at old mcdonald it was more a function of the whole thing was covered by gorse we want to clear Mr. Kaiser by that point wanted to clear get rid of all the gorse, except if it was really out of play on a ridge. But if it was if it was on a surface that you could maintain, let's maintain grass there. 
instead of fighting Gorse all the time because it wants to take back over the whole place. It tends to get windy there too. It does. So. You know, so uh, you know, all of those courses are wide, but Old McDonald is that much wider because it was just kind of an open gorse field when we started. And in clearing up all the gorse, we had to plant grass. And when we planted grass, we thought it doesn't really cost that much more to mow most of this grass. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's, let's build a course where it's really hard to lose a ball. Now, you, you know, Piners number two, it's really hard to lose a ball, but they do it with pine needles and, and like open sand. Yeah. And one, not the native wire grass. That's the little thick clumps of stuff. That's where you could lose a ball. <laughs> but, but you know, the, you know, pine straw type stuff yeah. and, and, you know, they can have like an open sandy area and it'll get a little weedy and they have to spray it every once in a while. But, you know, and Bandon, that blows away and it becomes a giant crater. So you really can't just leave an open area like that that you're not maintaining. If you don't have some kind of native vegetation on it, you better be mowing grass. That's how old McDonald got as wide as it is. Um, but we felt like, okay, it's wide, but if you're way over on the right side of the fairway, you're not going to be able to hit a ball, a shot anywhere close to the green. Or anywhere close to the hole, you get a you can get it on the greens, you can't get it close to that whole location or that whole location on the right. So we were fine with that. It gets people around, you know. It maybe makes it easy for them to make a bunch of bogeys, but it doesn't make it easy for them to make a bunch of pars and birdies. That's when I know I'm playing bad. Is when I make a ton of bogeys. It's like the most frustrating round of golf is when you touch. But like. That's a good distinction is when you're, it can be really wide, but you, there has to be a spot you have to, there has to be good and, and, and bad spots if you have the width, right? Yes. I mean, ideally it's, ideally it's like, there's a great spot to be, you know, and then varying shades of gray out mm -hmm. the, you know, the further away you are from that spot, the harder that approach shot gets. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of like the 12th hole of Ballyneal where it's, it's really pretty wide, but the further you play right away from that, the worse and worse that angle gets into the, into the green, you get blind. And then also like the way that green, especially if it's a left flag, it's, it's nearly impossible to hit it close from way, right? Yes. Yes. That, that hole, most people won't know that hole, but it, yeah. it kind of plays the left half of the fairway, which is about 25 or 30 yards wide so it would be it would be it, that would be all the fairway there was at wing yeah. foot is you know there's there's a little ridge on the left and then bunk, some bunkers into it and there's about 25 or 30 yards of relatively flat actually bowled out a little bit fairway and if you can keep it on that beeline that's a pretty good angle to the green and then there's a bunch more fairway but it goes like over a little ridge and then just down and down into a big bowl to the right and if you, you know, if you miss it down there, you can barely see where you're going. You may not see the top of the flag at all. And, you know, be, because that green is the opposite, the right side of the green is high and the left side of the green is low. If you've driven it right and the pin is left and you've got to go over the high side of the green to get at the low one, you just, you know, you're just trying to make sure you don't leave it on the high side and leave yourself an impossible putt. It's like, just get it over let it feed off the back of the slope of the back left maybe and 
but that's a hard shot to visualize when you're down there and you can't see it that well. So I, with this case, like, do you think Americans have just been conditioned because of the the way courses have been maintain, maintained where 25 yards of fairway? If you're in the fairway, it means you're good. Do you think that's why with a wider course or like a centerline bunker, it natural reactions of golfers are like, this is unfair if I'm in the fairway and I can't hit it close to a pin? Yes. Yes. I mean, most people, you know, everybody that, you know, when they, when they play the course for the first time, they don't know, you know, they don't know it's better to be right than left. And unfortunately a lot of golf courses, a lot of the new courses that are built are for resorts and, you know, you might only play them a couple of times. So you might not, you know, if you're not interested in architecture, you might not figure that out right away and you just dismiss it as a bad hole because you drove it in the wrong spot and it was really hard from there. And why the hell did they do that to me? <laughs> and you never looked at, well, you know, well, if I'd have driven it over the other side, I wouldn't have had that problem. Um, you know, and, and very, you know, there's lots of clients that would be really afraid of building a golf course like that had a bunch of holes like that because, you know, the client might walk away bummed out and not come back, you know, but the, you know, what makes a golf course really successful is when you get a clientele that keeps coming back. And these kind of features that we're talking about with strategy and with, those are the things they get people to want to come back. You know, the guy that doesn't dismiss it for the first time and he comes back the second time and he goes and he drives it over the other side of the fairway and then he's like, oh, yeah, this is way different hole if you hit it over here. Then he keeps coming back. And that makes up for the guys that dismiss it the first time. In, in a sense, a polarizing golf course where it evo evokes reactions in both ways is almost like the fact that like great art, if it elicits reactions, is right. con that's considered great art is when it elicits a lot of different reactions from different people. For some reason, it seems like in golf architecture, polarizing courses are kind of like where they elicit, you know, extreme reactions, whether good or bad or, you know, all across the board are thought of negatively. They are. And, it, you know, it goes down to, you know, Developing golf courses is so much different now than it was 75 years ago when all those great old courses were built. It's a commercial venture now. Every time, you know, even if the, even if the client is really wealthy and it's not, you know, he's not really doing it directly for the, you know, to make money off it at all, but it's still a commercial venture and he doesn't want it to flop and lose money. So it matters to him if people don't like it and dismiss it. And so, you know, the feedback that you get from clients a lot is to be conservative and avoid that. And, you know, we don't, we don't want to deal with those kind of reactions and, you know, and that leads to boring, same old, same old work, you know, if, unless you're a good designer and you, you know, you learn kind of when to, you know, you learn your client's tolerance for that kind of stuff a little bit, but you also learn when not to listen to them and just go ahead and, you know, make it a little more interesting anyway. And 
you know, know that there will be some pushback on it, but it's okay. Cause if the client, you know, the clients are way into golf, you know, they all of them. So, you know, they're going to ask you about those features while you're building a golf course. It's not like we're just going to, you know, pull the gates open on opening day and nobody noticed that the 14th hole is really controversial. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you ought to know. <laughs> it's uh, I feel like that's the, the situation municipal courses get themselves in so much is like, they're afraid of doing something bold. Oh, exactly. So it ends up yeah. being, and they re so they blind. react to every criticism. I mean, you know, that, that, that other great American phrase, the customer is always right. There's golf courses that try to operate their business like that. And that's crazy because, you know, I mean, people that aren't in the golf business don't know. But if, if you sat behind the desk at a, in a pro shop at any golf course in America for one day and listened to all the stories of people that come in and play the golf course and how conflicting they are, that hole was trash. The next guy... Oh, that was great. That was the best hole on the course. And it's it's usually because the, the first guy made seven and the next guy made three. But, you know, but the, the opinions on every single feature are all over the map. So to try to to try to aim to please all those people at the same time is ridiculous. I've got a buddy that's got he's got his own rankings that, and, and they're somewhat dictated off of how he played the day. And it just I can't. I can't stand it. It just drives me crazy. It's like you got to take your personality. It's like the most important thing whenever you're evaluating anything is to take your own personal bias out of the situation. And right. It's a, it's almost. It, I sometimes think playing bad is like a good way to actually see more of the golf course because you're you're in all, you're like walking in different spots. Like if 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 you're playing really good, like you don't see as much of the golf course. You don't see Correct. like you don't see the bad places. When I caddied in St. Andrews, you know, I, I'd learn things when I caddied for players that weren't that good because they'd hit it in all kinds of weird places. And, and, and then you'd also see some hazards that you really had to steer them around that you'd never even thought about before. You know, there's like, you know, there's, there's a little bunker on the third hole that's about, I think it's like 130 or 140 yards off the tee. It's right in the middle. And, you know, you, you probably don't know it's there because you never had to think about that for one minute. And neither did I. But I caddied for some people that if if you just had them hit it down the middle, they were going to be in it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny. Uh, so this is an interesting question. I, 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 I like this one. It's from Zach Turek. And if you build an amazing course, we'll say a 9 or a 10 on the Doak scale. Okay. Does it matter where it's located? Uh, it doesn't matter where it's located in terms of, yes, it's a great golf course. It does matter a lot where it's located in terms of, will it make money and thrive? You know, the idea that build it and they will come thing, the field of dreams thing. I mean, that's worked in some places where you wouldn't have thought it, you know, like, so, I mean, the Sandhills of Nebraska is probably the best example. You know, Sandhills is in a great golf course. It's a private club, national membership, you know, one financial model and it works, 
but it does you know they they don't make a killing off it because this golf season is so short yeah that you know they only do they do less than 10,000 rounds a year um and for most like public operations trying to do trying to make money at less than 10,000 rounds a year that's almost impossible the pro forma would say that's kind of the anything less than that and you'll lose money every single year never mind paying to build the golf course just on operations year over year mm-hmm. now they've got it crammed into like a four and a half five month season so it's not quite as bad for them as if it was spread out over longer and they still had to staff everything all year but yeah i mean there's certainly places that you could build a great golf course but you'd also better be ready to subsidize it for a long time or maybe forever if you want it to stay there because it will not attract there's not enough people willing to travel there often enough for it to make money and support itself yeah i think people see the places like bandon was obviously a success story building something in in the middle of nowhere sand hills but it's so important also to look at the people that were behind the project Yes. You know, it wasn't just like, you know, Joe, like they were very, they had a vision. They were, you know, entrepreneurial pl- people in most cases. Like there, there's a reason there's, there's beyond and, just the course, there's important th- factors. Absolutely. And, you know, and they understood the risks of what they were doing, but they also had a plan for how to deal with those that most people wouldn't. So, you know, so there's several courses that have built been built out in that part of the world since Sandhills. And I, I've done two of them. And I don't think any of those other courses have ever made money. You know, they, you know, they, they're still surviving. A couple of them have been bankrupted and reincorporated once or twice. Um, but you know, just trying to make, make positive cash flow any positive cash flow year over year is really hard there you know and then people are naive too i mean you know like when when we talk about barn boogle the americans perspective of barn boogle is tasmania it's an island off australia that's as remote as you could possibly imagine it could be you know one of the attractions of tasmania to mike kaiser from the first time i mentioned it to him was if you could make a project work there, that would almost prove that you could make a project work anywhere because that's so remote. But that's not, you know, if Barnboogle depended on overseas visitors to make money, it would be dead in the water. Yeah. I mean, there's no, you know, they overseas business is like five or 10% of their business. What makes it work is there's, there's lots of golfers in Melbourne or Sydney that are only an hour flight and a little drive away and they go two or three times a year. Yeah. If it wasn't for them, it wouldn't make money. Let's say people will say Sand Valley's remote. It's remote. It's remote. But it's got three major, three of the top 30 metro areas within driving distance, like a, a, a day's drive. So right. it's not that remote. Same thing with Streamsong. You're, you're within an hour of Tampa and a little over an hour of Orlando. It's not remote, remote. No, it's like- no. I mean, I, you know, when people started saying Streamsong was remote at the beginning, you know, I mean, I've worked in Mullen, Nebraska and in Tasmania and in Montana. And, and I'm like, 
shit, we're an hour from Disney World. Come yeah. on. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I that mean, it is, it is, it's, it's in a place that nobody was going before we built the golf course, but it's not that far from a lot of people. That's the thing. It, it drives me nuts as a Chicago golfer. Like, so, you know, I live in the city of Chicago. If I want to go play golf, I'm, I'm probably going to be in the car for like an hour because of traffic. You know, yeah. same thing for New York golfers. Same thing. Like, so for these ur- certain big urban areas, like if I could drive to Streamsong in an hour in Chicago, I'd be there all the time playing. Right. Versus, but then it's, it's, it's always interesting to me and you get into some smaller metro areas, like 30 minutes outside the city is, is like a, a big hike for people. Yeah. I mean, where I live in Traverse City, you know, I live an hour from Crystal Downs that that I joined. You know, it's one of my favorite golf courses in the world. Of course I joined there. But I don't get there that much because it is, you know, driving an hour each way and playing golf for four hours and taking any time to chat with the pro afterward or, you know, they make me consult there now so the superintendent wants to know <laughs> what I think about something or other. And so it's all day. And you can't, I can't do that that often. I, you know, I, I travel a lot. I'm away from home a lot already. If I lived in Northern Michigan and worked there all, all year round, then it would be easy to get over there more often, but it's pretty hard. And there's a lot of people in the same boat. Yeah. Um, Landon wants to know, does the inaccessibility of architecturally significant golf courses hurt the game? You know, I used to, when I was young, I used to think about that, that especially after spending a year overseas and seeing how nearly everything over there was accessible and then knowing how inaccessible the Augustas and Oakmonts and those clubs are here. But no, I, I, you know, I don't think it hurts the game. What hurts the game is there aren't more courses like that that are accessible. You know, it's not... You know, we were just talking about Sand Hills. Sand, if Sand Hills was just open to the public, it probably would have failed. You know, there's a membership that supports it is the only reason that it's there. So we can't blame those people. It wouldn't even be there without them. And if, you know, if they're putting up all the money to keep it alive and they don't think that you ought to come for a day that's kind of their business (laughs) would you say also that some of the places i think about this a lot is some of the places couldn't be what they are if they were public courses sure um yeah i mean there's you know there's there's certain things that we do in design because that we can, you know, you can only build really small greens if it's not that busy. You can only build a golf course and not worry about cart paths if you've got a membership willing to support that or a, a huge clientele willing to support that. And people don't understand how different the golf course can be without cart paths. It's not just that there's no cart paths that you're looking at. We see, you know, I've built a lot of golf courses that are built for walkers and there are no car paths. And now, so now I'm so spoiled. 
when we have to go back and do a course that has wall-to-wall car paths, you cannot believe how many things you want to do that you would do. We'll do. We'll just put the green right there and the next T right behind it up there beyond the bunker. And then, oh shit, we can't do that because there's no place to put a cart path in between. We'd have to run the cart path around the other side of the green, and around the back of the green, and up that little hill to the next T. But there's another hole over there behind this, so we can't do that here. And so we better not even put the green in this location. That really, that happens more often than you think when you're designing a golf course and cart paths are part of the program. And that's one reason that some of these dream golf places that are walking only, that's one reason those golf courses are as good as they are. Because there are fewer restrictions on what you can and can't do if you don't have to worry about where cart paths go. What would be the happy medium to wall-to-wall cart paths versus, you know, uh, walking only for a a public, like a high track, a high volume golf course? uh, First, let me say, I've got zero problem with people that need a golf cart playing golf and using a golf cart. Yeah, I I like it. If I'm playing golf a bunch of days in a row, Getting a golf cart every once in a while is not the worst thing in the world. I personally don't do it. I have a very good, very old friend at this point who who looked at me very hard 10 years ago and said, I wish I had never gotten on a golf cart. He's he's Scottish. (laughs) And, you know, know, he was like 80 or 85 and he finally broke down. He couldn't walk 18 holes anymore. He broke down and, okay, you know, they do have, you know, a lot of those links courses in Scotland, they'll have, they have a handful of golf carts Yeah, because there's members that need them. And so they, you know, they were, they kept offering him, you know, just take the cart. You know, you don't want to quit playing golf. Just take the cart. So he did. And, you know, he could get around and play, still play 18 holes, but his health has gone downhill. And he, and he thinks it's because he doesn't go out and walk so much. He said, he said he would have rather just started playing nine holes or mm-hmm. six holes or whatever the hell he could play instead of getting in a cart and riding around. So so I'm pretty militant about mm-hmm. it for my personal life. But but there's people that need golf carts and they should have them. And the the number of people that actually need them, there wouldn't be enough traffic to worry about. Yeah. If you only had 10 rounds a day playing out of golf carts, you could do that anywhere. It would be zero problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is everybody sees those guys and then they want the golf cart too. And if there's 50 carts a day, there's a lot of places where the turf just won't handle that. Maybe not all the time, but when it's too wet or when it's too hot and dry, you know, I mean, you know, a place like Ballyneal or Sand Hills in the summer when it's really hot, just the friction of tires on turf just desiccates the grass. You, you know, anybody, anybody you know will probably have seen like brown tire tracks going over a golf cart that going over a fairway. That's what happened. Yeah. Is it just? It wasn't even like spinning out or anything. It's just the heat of the tires is a lot when it's really hot out there. Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, the the problem is there's no happy medium. There is a happy medium in terms of how many golf carts could this could we take without it being a problem, 
but it's hard to cut people off right there. Yeah. You know, once you allow golf carts, it's hard to stop anybody who wants one from taking one. And and more and more people want to play out of a golf cart everywhere I go. It's not just here. You know, we've infected Australia and we've infected... Uh, you know what I'm surprised isn't more popular is the the four-bagger cart. You know, where right. you put four bags on one cart. To me, that seems like the ideal happy medium in terms of... Yeah, take turns walking. Yeah. It, it, you know, you've got at least one guy who will move the cart if if most of the guys want to walk. But it, you'll, you'll just get it around. Yeah. that's. I mean, I wish more courses had... Like, you, you don't see those at any public golf course. But it's the revenue of the cart, too. It's that's the, right. It's yeah. the, the back I mean, half in, of it. Yeah, in the States, a lot of it's driven by revenue, which I think is is kind of a false argument to have you know they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to charge that much for a cart you know they they could just charge more for the green fee and less for the cart yeah and and say the profit was from the golf course but that's not but it, you know when they they have to advertise the green fee and they don't have to advertise the cart fee so they tend to do it the other way around yeah well the golf's 28 bucks the cart's 25 <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, some places force you to take a cart, which is crazy. And that'll do it for this episode of The Yoke with Doak. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review and rate us where you listen to your podcasts. With the holiday season around, be sure to check out uh, Tom's books. Uh, he's got the new edition of The Confidential Guide, uh, which we'll talk about extensively in the next episode of The Yoke with Doak. But check those out at renaissancegolf.com. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 